The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 107.7 The Bronx, 107.7 TheBronc.com, proudly nominated for National Association of Broadcasters 2019 and 2021 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are broadcasting live from the Bronx, all new digital broadcast studios. Welcome to Health 411. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the politics of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, we are recording with our student producer, Daniel Gaines, and our guest, Professor Jim Riggs. Dr. Riggs is a professor of biology, behavioral neuroscience, and health sciences here at Ryder University. And Dr. Riggs is an expert in immunology and vaccines and everything immunological. And that's great because today we are going to talk about vaccines, especially the COVID-19 vaccines, plural. It's not one thing, is a conversation I had with um, a member of our support staff recently. There are many of them. So welcome, Dr. Riggs. Thank you, John. Good to be here. We are happy to have you. So let's start in general with sort of an overview when somebody says vaccine, what are they talking? Like, what is a vaccine? Okay, so essentially, it's a controlled delivery of something to stimulate your immune system. We want it to mimic the disease-causing uh, microorganism without causing full-blown disease leading to death in the recipient. So the idea is to train your immune system so that the next time it sees that critter, it will w recognize, remember, and respond. The three R's are the hallmark. And the key part here is memory, immunological memory, remembering that prior exposure. And again, the controlled primary exposure to this is, is something that's not going to cause disease. Mm -hmm. That's right. So, and, and so vaccines, are they a new thing? Oh, my goodness, no. No. So most people think of vaccines, they go back to Jenner in the late 1600s and vaccination for smallpox. Uh, he's a country, rural country doctor that made this very cool observation that milkmaids did not get sick from smallpox virus, and that's because they had occupational exposure to cowpox virus. And that, that virus is similar. It doesn't cause full-blown disease. But by occupational exposure to cowpox virus, those uh, women trained their immune systems unless they were resistant to smallpox. What his intellectual leap of faith was that he took this concept and he actually took lesions, dried lesions from infected individuals and then rubbed them in or made a cut of flap of flesh and, and basically inoculated um, his test subjects, which at the time included things like orphans, mm -hmm. his own children, prisoners, and then to validate that these early vaccines worked, they would actually bundle those vaccine recipients with someone with the disease process, <laughs> make them sleep together essentially overnight, and then test whether or not it worked. If people got sick or not. Yeah. Um, 
And so um, has and we're, we're going to talk about this as we talk about as we sort of build a case for talking about the, the different kind of covid vaccines. Um, and, you know, we, we, we can smile and laugh a little bit about their techniques, mm -hmm. um, but conceptually um, has what what has changed since Jenner's time to up to today? Uh, interesting. Our, our comprehension and knowledge of the immune system has certainly mm -hmm. advanced. Um, what I want to do in the history aspect, too, is to acknowledge that a thousand years prior to Jenner, there were cultures in China and in sub-Saharan Africa that did similar processes. So there are silk screens in China that showed these individuals collecting lesion material in like a dental floss and then rubbing it into the skin of the, the vaccinated patient, or actually, interestingly, blowing up a nose with a tube, dried pustules of mm -hmm. material. So pretty insightful, because the route of exposure for many viruses is respiratory transmission to blow it up the nose. But to answer your question, um, what has changed? Well, we, we still stick people with, right. with vaccine preparation. Exactly. So what I'm, what, what I'm, and this is going to be very important as we develop our conversation, is that you know, the scientific process is a, is a little bit more refined. We're not scraping postules from sick animals or sick people, you know, opening wounds with knives and affecting people that way. We're not um, you know, immunizing people by putting things on blankets or clothes and giving it to people. Doing challenge trials. Yeah, yeah, right. We're, we're, right. You know, we have a, a, we would like to argue, you know, a thousand years from now, they're going to look at our scientific process and say how barbaric we were. Right. But at the time we have now, in a sense, we are collecting um, in, in those days, live virus, right? Or live bacteria, because mm -hmm. you can do, do some decent thing with that as well, and infecting people with that. And this becomes an important thing to think about because even though our science is better, our understanding of underlying immunology is better, conceptually, we're sort of doing the same thing. You, you, you have a, some sort of experimental ideal of idea of things, you give it to people or animals, then you expose the people or animals to whatever you know yeah. virus or thing you're interested in, and then you see if they get sick. Well, that's the challenge of those trials, right? Is you can't do challenge trials. You can't take someone you vaccinated mm -hmm. and then say, "Here, now I'm going to expose you to COVID mm -hmm. or influenza or what have you." Right. We don't have that option. What we do is we vaccinate a bunch of people and say, "Go, go about your business," and we have a bunch of controlled people that were not vaccinated, and we see who get sick and who doesn't. And this is typical for vaccine development, whether it's the flu vaccine, whether it's a right. MMR vaccine. 10 years and a billion dollars to develop your typical for, for, vaccine. For a typical Not vaccine. COVID. Right. COVID had its foot on the gas. We did it in about 11 months. But, I mean, there was a lot of baseline data that was worked out with RNA, mm -hmm. lipid nanoparticles, and things like that that set the table for this. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of a, a window of opportunity platform was available for flu but covid popped onto the scene and it was put the foot on the gas and let's give it a go okay so what do you mean when you when you say put up their put scientists put their foot on the gas and charge the head explain let's, to me what you mean so we have this huge unmet medical need with these people that are succumbing to this respiratory transmission disease we can we can map the outer portion of the virus that we think is critical there was some coronavirus history to understanding what mm -hmm. would be targets and then using the RNA platform, I'm, I'm focusing on the RNA vaccines. I think that's the premise of what you want to talk about. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah I want to talk about them. The and most, I want to, those are the most uh, successful uh, yes. ones of the four or five different types that there are. 
But they basically had this strategy, we, we know what to focus on, we just want to get it inside the body. And the, the RNA platform is fast, it's novel. Mm -hmm. And we hadn't done this kind of thing before, anywhere near this on this scale. Right. So, so yeah. for people who are listening might not have a good idea of what RNA is. And I, and I know that is a fact, because I, I even hear people talk who, you know, everything from, I, uh, you know, I don't want to get the vaccine because I think the RNA is going to change my genetic code. Right. So, like, what, what is RNA? Right. So, so look at, think of the DNA that's inside the nucleus inside your cell as a library of information, right? Thousands of books in this storage of information. What RNA is, is it's like you go in, pull a book off the shelf in the library, you make a photocopy of that information and you walk out of the library with that piece of information. So there's this repository of information, which is your DNA. But we don't use all that information all the time. There's just a page out of a book that we might use. That page out of the book is this RNA molecule that leaves the nucleus and ends up in the cytoplasm of the cell. And there are things called ribosomes that hop on the RNA and they trans basically translate that information. They take nucleotide sequence information and convert it into amino acid sequence information. And in essence, what they do is they, they read the recipe to make the cookie, so yeah. to speak. And then the product of this is a protein that in the case of these vaccines is ending up on the surface of the cell. And then the immune system sees it and can respond to it. So it, is that what people are talking about when they talk about spike proteins in the, in the case of COVID or other Exactly viruses? right. So the outermost portion of the virus that matters in this particular case with COVID would be these spike proteins. These are the molecules they used basically to get inside your cells. It's like a hand reaching for a doorknob. The doorknob would be the receptor on the cell. The virus's hand essentially is the cell surface protein that's binding to that doorknob. We want to block that interaction. So if we can train the immune system to see the hand heading for the doorknob and block its ability to bind, you prevent infection. Okay, so when people say, I don't wanna get vaccinated because I'm afraid it's an RNA vaccine that's gonna change my DNA, nothing you just described about what RNA does right. says anything near that. Correct, and the thing is that the RNA bits that we're putting into you they, RNA is a very fragile molecule. It is a very, very short, what we call half-life. 80% of the viral world has RNA-based genomes. The viruses, most of the viruses that are out there have RNA for their genetic information. We are loaded with what are called RNAs. RNAs are enzymes that degrade RNA. They're, you, they're everywhere. So working, if you ever work with RNA in a lab, it's a nightmare because there's all these RNAs that chew up the RNA. So. RNA has to be controlled in a delivery to get it inside of a cell in a special environment which it can, where it can then be expressed. Once it's expressed, it decays. It's, it's no longer available. It's not stably integrated into your genome. The, there isn't a, a cache or a depot of RNA particles that will continue to generate viral protein, unfortunately. If you had more <laughs> viral protein, theoretically, you'd have an even right. more better and, and, vaccine response. And you know, as we conclude this segment, because we want to go on, I just, I'm just gonna say it very succinctly. People who might think that are sort of violating the laws of biology because there's no way administration of RNA can, is going to affect that a host correct. genetic code. There's just no that, way to do it. Absolutely impossible. Yeah. And so we're gonna come back and we're gonna continue our discussion about vaccines with a focus on the COVID-19 vaccine in Health 411 after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.
This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. And Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. One zero seven seven the Bronx, one zero seven seven thebronxcom Recording from the Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health Four One One. I'm Professor Jonathan Carp. I'm here with Professor Jim Riggs, and we are having a conversation about vaccines. And we're going to take the conversation uh, with a focus to a focus with the COVID nineteen vaccines. And um, in the break, Dan, you had a, a, a question you wanted to ask Dr. Riggs. So my question's kind of relating to why people are skeptical with a lot of these COVID vaccines. And it kind of relates to the Tuskegee experiments and kind of misuse of science like that and trusting these new vaccines that are obviously a lot faster than normal vaccine production. Great point. A great point. I mean, it, Operation Warp Speed, as this was called, just the name terrified some people, the notion that you would... You know, normally, if it's taking a decade to gener gen generate a drug, how could this happen in 11 months or mm -hmm. less? Now, the, the, the Tuskegee experiment was a syphilis trial. Essentially, what they were doing, they were letting gentlemen that had syphilis go untreated. They wanted to watch the progression of that disease. It's a bacterial sexually transmitted infection. So they didn't treat these individuals. And syphilis is an increasingly horrific disease as it pr proceeds from primary, secondary to tertiary syphilis. It presents with these horrible ulcerative lesions mm -hmm. in the middle intermediate stages and it eventually leads to crazy psychosis and madness. In fact, there are some famous people that are believed to have been syphilitics and might have explained some of their behavior, like Adolf Hitler, uh, Al Capone, and so on. So there's a dark history in terms of research and experimentation in certain cohorts. This is, these were African-American males that they left untre untreated at the Tuskegee Institute. So yeah, there, there's a, a mis misperception, a common misperception in certain communities that the people don't want to be experimented on. And they're feeling like, well, this vaccine trial comes out. It didn't have full FDA approval, and many people were getting shots in their arms. They didn't want to be, feel that they were going to become guinea pigs in this whole process. Yeah. We're at a billion doses and counting. Mm -hmm. It's fully FDA approved. So I think it's if you're sitting on the sidelines, it's time to get up and get the jab. Right. And, that, and that's one of the you nailed it. People say, well, I'm you know, I don't want to get vaccinated because they developed it too fast. They didn't have time to do the science. Is there any truth to that? Uh, no, the science is actually really, really good. It is stunning. I mean, the, the fact there's so the people that did this, the two the two primary people that did this, they just received what's called the, the Lasker Award. Mm -hmm. It's actually now called the Lasker Debaki Award. They've added another gentleman, a famous cardiologist who came up with artificial heart and heart transplantation surgery. The Lasky is considered to be, the Lasker rather is considered to be the precursor to the Nobel Prize. These people have won the, the, the baby Nobel Prize, if you will, for their contributions to the development of the strategy. It's, it's stunning. Um, some people are claiming that this is one of the most significant advances in all biological sciences ever, that this mm -hmm. has actually happened. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's because there's a tremendous amount of promise associated with this platform to do with other infectious diseases. Yeah. And when you're saying this, we're, we're talking again, the use of RNA, Correct. which is small little pit, little 
little small little segments of genetic code that cannot make you sick. We're not looking at like attenuated polio virus where, you know, there are you know, occasionally there's a breakthrough. We're looking at something that has no biological you can't change the way that cells work. Right. So just make sure everybody understands what Jonathan just said. He said attenuated polio virus. Mm -hmm. And essentially, there are vaccines where you tame the disease-causing organism. So if I take a virus or a bacterium out of a human host, it no longer needs to express the complete set of genes it needs to persist or survive in a hospital uh, human body where the immune system is attacking it. So if I pass the virus and cells in a dish, or I pass the pathogenic disease-causing bacterium in a dish, they'll reduce expression of these disease-causing genes. That's what we call attenuation. So you've tamed the beast, so to speak. You can then inject that into a patient, train the immune system without causing pathology. There are cases where such viruses have been problematic, but everybody in this room and everybody on this campus and everybody that's listening to us has probably been vaccinated with measles, mumps, rubella, NMR. Mm -hmm. That's an attenuated vaccine. Works quite well. You don't hear any issues about that. I think it's probably over 97% effective. So mm -hmm. there are versions of attenuated vaccines that are quite um, effective. Mm -hmm. And, they, and yeah. they, 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 do, they, they do work well. But this yeah. is not the case with correct. anything related to not only the, the RNA vaccines against COVID, but even the other methodologies that, uh, correct. that are out there. Yeah. What are some of those other methodologies, both here in the United States and how other countries have tried so, to do it? Old school would be to take the organism that causes a disease and inactivate it. I don't like to use the word live for viruses. We could have an, an hour mm -hmm. conversation yeah. about <laughs> that. I think viruses are just replicating entities. You inactivate viruses that they can no longer. They're replication incompetent, we call it. But you can take viruses, you can take bacteria, you can basically inactivate them or kill them or chemically treat them or radiation treat them so that it's basically the organism, but it's no longer viable. That, that's a dead vaccine. Um, the attenuation is another type of vaccination. What would be the benefit of having a dead versus an attenuated? Which one is better? The attenuated ones are better because if I can put something into you that's replication competent, it chronically stimulates your immune response. You get a better res response. I sometimes can get away with a single or just a double dose of that. If I give you a dead or an activated organism, sometimes I have to hit you three times with that. A third strategy is to go completely away from putting any type of organism in you at all, but having defined those parts of the organism that your immune system is most likely to see, we will focus on that. We call those subunit vaccines. Mm -hmm. Again, most everybody that we'll talk to or listening to this will have had hepatitis B virus, HBV, horrific bloodborne disease that, again, it was a Nobel Prize winning vaccine. It was developed, it's called a subunit vaccine. It focuses on the outer surface protein of the hepatitis B virus. So that's the analogy would be one of the spike proteins for the right. coronavirus. And there are spike protein versions for COVID. Uh, mm -hmm. Novavax yes. has that. They're in phase three trials. Mm -hmm. That's coming, yeah. And it's still coming. But those shots usually require three shots. They have okay. less efficacy. And there's a presentation aspect to how the immune system sees that type of vaccine. It's markedly different from what we're learning about the RNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. And you, you mentioned efficacy. For if we take a step back for the annual flu vaccine, what's a typical efficacy? For 40, 40 to 60 percent. People, on a, on a people do that. People take it. Yeah. You know, companies give it out and there's yeah. lines. And there's a reason there. for even though there's low efficacy repeatedly with flu, there's a really good reason to still get the flu shot because 
it might not be the perfectly matching the strain that's moving through the population at a particular time, but in general, it will generate some antibodies that will be cross-protective, it will reduce the severity mm -hmm. of disease in you. And the other thing is, as you age, there is less functionality in the immune system, particularly in one compartment of your immune system that's vital for dealing with flu. If you have a history of flu vaccination, you're gonna do better with those respiratory diseases as you age. Pretty interesting. But it, if, if we go the efficacy route, which is, yeah. we, we, could, we could go off in that direction, but I wanna focus on efficacy. So the typical flu vaccine, 40-ish percent yep. protection. Where are the COVID vaccines in terms of The RNA viruses, I fell out of my seat when, I, when yeah. I saw this for the first time. They're like 94, 95%. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's insane. The only prior data that I'd ever seen that had been that good was, I remember I was sitting in my office, probably in the 1990s somewhere, and the New England Journal of Medicine published on the uh, HPV vaccine, the human papillomavirus mm -hmm. vaccine. This is a subunit vaccine for kids to avoid getting human papillomavirus. Eventually, it, essentially it prevents cervical cancer mm -hmm. in girls. It's also recommended for teenage boys now as well. Um, but again, that was a subunit vaccine. It's a, I think it's a three-dose regimen for that vaccine that had 90-plus percent efficacy. And cervical cancer, in theory, is, is disappearing. Yeah, it's, um, it's pretty amazing. It's, yeah. like it's recommended for, right, I guess, yeah. teenagers now. And genital warts are essentially the ward. common yep, SCI associated with this disease. Yeah, yeah. and, and it, people... Disappearing. Right, and, and, and people get those vaccines without much... Well, we went debate. through a lot of social, religious... If my daughter gets that vaccine, she's going to become promiscuous kind of silly arguments that we've had. And there's study after study of the sociologists talking to the scientists, that's not the case. Yeah, so people put up the alarm signals, but the scientific process, which takes time often to learn, the, you know, to separate what's true from what's not true, it took time to show, yeah, no, people who are getting this vaccine were not becoming pernicious. You know, pregnancy right. rates weren't going up, Correct. other diseases weren't going up or, or anything like that. If you could take a vaccine to prevent a cancer, why would you not do that? That's what I, what I just don't understand. Yeah, myself, and so. and so, so so sort of the same argument when people look at some of the, um, well, we're talking about COVID vaccines. If we're going to look at reproduction a little bit, there are people who don't want to take the COVID vaccine because they think it's going to make them infertile, which 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 is, is almost akin to you know if I get a vaccine from cowpox, am I going to grow a tail, kind of thing? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, you don't grow a tail, and no, you're not going to be. There's lost. absolutely no, is there any evidence at all I've, that has come out of the scientific process? Nothing about fertility that I've heard is at all, evident. none whatsoever. Yeah, and it, um, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense, even if you think about the targets of I, the COVID vaccine. The only thing I've heard is about cells. some possibility of altered, slight alteration of menstrual cycle, but it's transient. It's not like something that you're permanently yeah. going to be off your cycle for, for women. Yeah, and trust me, if it was a um, a contraceptive. There would be people advocating the vaccine for that very <laughs> right. and, and I want to point out, too, if you look at the vast numbers of people who have had the vaccine in the United States and worldwide, we're talking probably more so than any other family of vaccines. At this point, you'd think that adverse side effects would be known. Great, great point. The math is on our side. Yeah, ab yeah. Ab absolutely. Math is our friend here. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. the scientific process. Excellent. Let's take a break for some brief underwriting announcements in Health 411. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.
This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. And Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. One zero seven seven the Bronx, one zero seven seven the Bronx dot com. Recording from the digital Bronx studios. Welcome back to Health Four One One. Doctor Riggs and I and Dan are having a conversation about vaccines with a focus on the co- the family of COVID nineteen vaccines. We're talking about what they are, how they're developed, and what they're not. And there is some resistance both in the United States and probably worldwide of some people not getting vaccinated. Um, And if you're not vaccinated, you don't have any protection at all um, from being infected and from some of the worst outcomes if you do become infected. And and, and that's what we're seeing now too in some hospitals, you know, uh, people who can't get in for traditional illnesses because the hospitals are full of people who are not immunized and infected with COVID-19. And Dr. Ridge, you had some thoughts on those people and what they're thinking and what the data are showing those people are asking for. Well, it's really disheartening, right? If you think about the healthcare professionals that are in the trenches that have been dealing with this, they're seeing wave after wave of this. And many of them are getting vaccinated or being coerced into getting vaccinated, actually, in New York State right now. Um, and they're, they're like, why are we continuing to do this? This sea of humanity that continues to come in. And it's, as you're saying, it overwhelms these medical centers. They can't deal with their conventional patient population. So there's some people that are vaccinated, but have other issues, health issues, and they can't get the treatment that they need. So you're seeing people die from cancer, heart disease, leading causes of death normally because of the unvaccinated occupying all the space in the hospitals. But another issue that I just heard about that's pretty pretty fascinating, but actually quite annoying at the same time, is there are monoclonal antibodies or immunotherapies we can use to treat an infected individual. In other words, we can infuse this into this individual immunity. We can give them antibodies against the virus. No, no, just, just for people listening, uh, a monoclonal antibody is effectively a protein from so, some... That, that's going that that is that has been either engineered or has been produced naturally against a piece of the virus. Let's say a spike protein Correct. of the virus. Don't put the RNA in me, but you can put a gallon of yes. this protein, <laughs> this monoclonal, you know, genetically engineered protein into me to treat yeah. my disease so I survive. And the other aspect of that that's problematic for me is the, the cost differential. It's less than fifty bucks if you pay for a COVID vaccine. It's thousands of dollars per patient for these antibodies that we're infusing. Seventy percent of the load of those monoclonal antibodies to treat COVID are going to those areas of the country where you have the unvaccinated. Now, you might have someone who's been vaccinated and they never developed a really good titer and they get infected. Those antibodies should be available for those individuals. People are immune compromised or transplant recipients or what have you in some way, shape or form. We should not be using those antibodies to treat the unvaccinated. It's abuse of the healthcare system and the the finance model Mm -hmm. that we should have. So when people use convalescent plasma is it a single infusion like it would be like a single injection well let's get clear so you just jumped from monoclonal antibodies to convalescent okay that's that's true so monoclonal antibodies are a biopharmaceutical product made in the labs tremendously Mm -hmm. expensive magic bullets phenomenal drugs right 
cost costly to infusion patients. Convalescent serous means I take the blood of someone who's immune to COVID, I clean it up, I run it through a filtration system, and then I infuse into the victim who's suffering <laughs> from COVID these convalescent antibodies. Uh, go, back go, to, go, a, go back to Jenner, mm -hmm. right? We're not that far from yeah, we're we not that go, far from We could go into a lot of, but this is actually has worked for Ebola in Africa. It saved mm -hmm. a lot of lives there. They started using convalescent plasma in, Amer in uh, I think in the UK in the early stages of COVID. There are a lot of challenges associated with that, not the least of which would be other viral infections that could be in that sera. The quality of the antibodies, the status of the convalescent serous immune status, are they in the peak of their antibody production? There, there's a whole lot of immunological parameters to that that make that quite variable, not the least of which is my antibodies are not the same as his antibodies are not the same as your antibodies. My antibodies going into you might elicit an immune response yeah. from you against my antibodies. Yeah, graft versus host yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. So we have genetic variation in our antibodies between each other. The monoclonals are engineered to reduce that variability. And these infusions are not permanent. Vaccination gives you months to years, we're gonna learn, of immunity. An infusion is good for two to three weeks. You and can get COVID again. Yeah, you can, you can get again. COVID again. You don't have durable, long-lasting, innate, mm -hmm. of your own immunity. Yeah, because the, the idea is you haven't invoked your an immune response, it, uh, your own immune system doing it. You just have the, con the results of another immune response happening. Exactly. Yeah. So to be clear, it's more, it's kind of not like, us taking the antibodies, more of us borrowing them to fight it off than we get rid of them. That is correct. Those, those antibodies, those proteins, don't last more for, than two to three weeks. The functionality of the protein is such that it degrades over time. But in the interim, it'll save a patient's life during a, you know, a serious phase of viral expansion. If I infuse you know, billions of proteins to neutralize mm -hmm. the virus, it should temper your disease process. But then they're gone you have no durable immunity. Your immune system was not trained to re respond to that. That doesn't mean that those patients couldn't six to eight months later get a vaccine, develop their own immunity, mm -hmm. and you know we don't have to do those antibody infusions again. Yeah. So, and the data are showing now, uh, you know, people are getting infected, both immunized and unimmunized. Who's dying? Oh, clearly not. <laughs> those that are vaccinated right something like i've seen data something 97 percent of the people who yeah, are dying nowadays astounding. which is yeah. a lot different than a, you know a year and a half ago a year ago yeah. and let's you not know. let's be really clear there's something that people need to understand it's just something called sterilizing immunity which is mm -hmm. a false concept you don't get vaccinated and have you're completely now a man or woman of steel that you're completely immune you still can carry and shed virus particularly this delta variant which is really really very, very high affinity virus for the receptor to get inside of cells. So you can have virus in your nasal passages in your mucosal membranes. You could be sneezing it, sloughing it, transmitting it. You don't have overt symptoms. You don't have overt disease because your immune response is in good shape. And you know, talking about administration of vaccines, this is a very interesting wormhole to dive into. Why would you inject yourself in the arm <laughs> with something that comes up your nose naturally, right? So there will be probably in the future mucosal administered vaccines. There are some of us in the immunology community that say maybe you should, if you're immunized, allow mucosal immunity to develop. In other words, 
Yeah, for the, the, argument be, the argument, maybe you'd get the best protection if you used like the natural route, the natural of, route of, 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 of transmission, transmission. Yeah. right? And and um, how would people figure that out? That's going to be we're, we're going to figure it out. I think we are going to figure it out a lot through trial and error. It people will, are focused on those sorts of things. Right, so people would um, have to do the science to figure it out, yeah. and that's an important thing too because a, a lot of of what people don't understand, and I keep. In my own classes, I talk about how science takes time. It's sort of self-correcting, but you've got to do it. You don't. The whole beauty of science is you don't right. know the answer before you have something happen, and then you have like you know, quasi politicians like Anthony Fauci, who people get upset with him, but he's being actually sort of scientifically conservative Correct. by saying, "We you know we don't know yet. We got to figure it out." Perfect. So two things that pop into my head before we forget: we need mm -hmm. to talk about immunity, natural immunity mm -hmm. with exposure. But the other thing about Fauci that's really important is everybody gets angry. The, the folks that get angry about him, one of the things they say, well, he told us not to wear masks in the earliest days. The reason they told you not to wear masks were twofold. One is that we didn't have enough, and most of them should go to their frontline healthcare mm -hmm. workers. And that's always been the, the rule, the way we apply things, because those people are in the trenches dealing with dozens mm -hmm. of COVID-infected people per day. And the other is that if you look at people that wear masks, what are you doing? every hour you're fidgeting with it around the bridge of your nose mm -hmm. you're touching your yeah. nose like i look in the mirror the other day i lectured for an hour there's chalk dust all over the nose bridge of my mask mm -hmm. right so i've been touching and adjusting my mask if i've picked up the virus on my fingers and i'm adjusting mm -hmm. my mask and they've known that they've done these studies that show that there's transmission from people funneling their mask to bring it into their system yeah. get the jab yeah you gotta you gotta use the per personal <laughs> protection equipment appropriately Right. In, exactly. in, in order for it to be effective, um, um, natural immunity. Yeah, we'll but get I to wanna, that next section. Yeah, probably, but, right? but I do want to yeah. follow up while we're talking about Fauci and some of the criticism of him, both past and present. Um, it's because he was being scientifically conservative. We don't always know. We, and that's the beauty of science. You can't predict what's going to happen. And people have learned about the virus, they've learned. As time and studies and things went on, you don't know a priori, and you can make you know analogies to other things. When you know when HIV, when you know gay man syndrome first came out, they didn't even know it was a virus, grid, right? It's grid. And you had remember yeah. people on TV yeah. saying, "Oh, it's the God is going to cleanse the earth for the coming of the new yes. millennium." You remember that, right? Absolutely, it was a yeah. real thing, Dan. I, but that went away when people were able to identify a virus and they learned what was really going on. Well, when the virus yeah. is outside the gay community, that's when people said, oh, yeah, right. it might impact me. Right, when the children started dying yeah. and women yeah. started getting it. Right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And uh, right, it changed people's views. And yeah. the early part of the COVID pandemic, we were in the, the same wild, wild west where people True. were throwing around ideas. You don't know this. You don't know that. Well, yeah, it's brand new. We don't know. Of course Correct. we don't know. We have to figure it out. Yeah. And it took away a lot of fear and anxiety and stuff like that. And unfortunately, as you know, head of you know the, the government health research organization, Fauci got a lot of crap for that. Mm -hmm. And then you show clips, you know, a year later of things he said. Well, the state, the the, the, the cutting edge, not boundary between what's known and unknown was different a year ago. So of course he would say a different thing now. Correct. And a lot of people don't understand that about science. The progress. Just, just, just as a, as a, gener as a general thing. Three steps forward, two steps back often. Yep. Yeah. And, but in the end, yeah. over time, it gets better. Correct. We're going to continue this conversation on Health 411 after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com.
This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. And Rider University. Continue your studies with Rider University's online and part-time options at rider.edu slash next step. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 107.7 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronkcom We are recording from the Digital Bronx Studios on the campus of Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Welcome back to Health 411. We're having a conversation today with Professor Jim Riggs of the Department of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences here at Ryder University. And we are talking about vaccines and the COVID-19 vaccine. At the end of the last segment, uh, I invoked sort of the history of how people learned um, that what we now call AIDS or, you know, which is, is caused by a virus. And you had an interesting thought, Dan, you wanted to bring up. So recently there actually was an attempt at developing an HIV vaccine and it actually did, you know, to a certain extent prevent that, but not enough to pass into further trials. And right. And I think they did it in, in Africa. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think they did this trial on some high risk populations in Africa. And if I remember, folks, I think the efficacy was around 25, 31, 30, okay. 31%. So, yeah, 31 percent. Yeah. And so they halted the trial. They deemed it non-effective because the efficacy was not high enough to roll it out. Yeah, what the, just to go back, the efficacy the, of all the COVID vaccines, what? The 90, ones in, 94, 95%. Those are the plus. ones in the Not US. all of them. Well, the RNA, virus, the RNA vaccines are absolutely the best. There are yeah. some that hover around 60, 70%. Yeah. And the, so, the what, vectors, so yeah. somebody might ask, why, why in a relatively fast you know, manner, why could you get an efficacy of, let's just use 95% for a COVID vaccine, right. why hasn't one been developed for HIV? Great question. We, we could take an hour mm -hmm. to talk about this. I'd love to. Mm -hmm. um, in a nutshell, very different virus. It integrates its genome into our genome. Once it gets inside the cells, it can be go dormant, essentially go underground. So it's very good at hiding. It infects the key traffic cop in the immune system, what's called a helper T cell. So when it does blow out T cells, it's like Times Square on New Year's Eve without cops. <laughs> There's complete chaos in the immune system, yes. right? You don't have anybody directing traffic. Old square time, old, old school old, time. Uh, that's true. It's, it's that's dry true. now. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> everybody behaves somewhat yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody's staring in their phones. That's true. They're not looking up at the ball. Um, anyway, showing our age. Yeah. Um, so the the virus is challenging in that the polymerase that copies the genome is very, very error prone. So when the virus is cloning itself, it's constantly making mutants. So the immune system is playing whack-a-mole. With HIV. With HIV. And studies have shown that the immune system in an individual who's infected can be six months behind in terms of the variant and the evolution. So you're infected with a virus, but it ends up being a swarm of variants mm -hmm. from that. So, and, so is the analogy like, you know, the SARS coronavirus 2 and then the Delta variant and the other variants that are coming? Those viruses, these viruses are relatively stable. Yes. There, there's some really cool stuff coming out about the molecular biology of the coronaviruses. Mm -hmm. I, and again, we probably, you know. Yeah, we could have a whole show on the, fam the, what's just, the family of So they them, have yes. correction. They have polymerases that actually edit and correct. So if you use a, a, mm -hmm. a, a, a nucleotide inhibitor 
right? A premature chain termination, I'm getting probably pretty technical, but there are, there are drugs that we use to stop yeah. nucleotide elongation, like DDI, AZT, 3TC, the early mm -hmm. drugs for mm -hmm. uh, antiretroviral drugs. You fold the polymerase into putting in a, a block that ends the chain, chain length where you're replicating the viral genome. Coronaviruses have enzymes that edit out those yeah, the mistakes. Those, yeah. They edit out those mistakes. <laughs> yeah. So they're pretty, they're, they're wise in, in that particular fashion, but they don't generate mutants to the same degree that HIV does. So there's been, there's about 30 vaccine trials underway for HIV right now. We've gone through three or four phases of different development strategies for HIV vaccinology that were based on the, the successful technology and other viruses of that mm -hmm. era. For example, the initial days, we said, well, let's do a subunit vaccine because hepatitis B virus, we figured that out. Let's take GP glycoprotein 160 off the outer surface of the virus and make an antibody response against that. No protection. Mm -hmm. Didn't work at all. Um, what we really find that we, we need to get is what are, is called killer T-cell immunity. So there have been strategies. The most recent one was a, the one we were just talking about that failed. Th I think 31% is actually pretty good, but it, it failed in, in the eyes of those that make the decisions to continue with these things. That was a, a prime and boost strategy where they used the canary pox. They used the virus as a vector to deliver viral genes to generate a certain type of immune response, a T-cell immune response, and then they follow with a protein to get an antibody response. And that's as good as it got. It was at 31%. But the excitement is the Moderna platform, the RNA platform, mm -hmm. they're gonna they're using that in a, in the latest trials, what they're developing as a vaccine for this. Very, very cool. Very, very technical. So stop me if I get a little no, bit go, down go right ahead. So they have defined what are called broadly neutralizing antibodies. In other words, there's a, there's a stem. If there's a surface protein on the virus, HIV, that changes a lot, it's like the lollipop stick. That mm -hmm. lollipop stick is invariant. It stays the same. Can we make that a target in, in our vaccine strategy? They find that every single human being that they've tested has a really, 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 you make 100 billion B cells a day in a human okay. being. There's about 2,700 to 31,000 of them that actually might recognize this stem so it's it's the eye of the needle in 10 haystacks it's exceedingly right. rare but they found that you can clone and expand that population of cells to this particular target molecule and they're engineering it into an rna form to deliver as, as, a, right. as an rna vaccine in the lipid nanoparticle mm -hmm. that they'll get expression of this particular target molecule well, it's the stable part of the hiv virus the thing that doesn't right that, so that right the leaves vary. on the tree change every every season but the trunk stays good sort of the same that's what that's what i'm seeing as you talk on yeah. that tree and and, and yep. be able to do that um exciting yeah so right so right so the idea is that the the rna technology that's made these great um vaccines here maybe now can be applied to an older virus Yep. You know, old, I'm old, the uh, laughing older virus, the HIV virus, and it might lead some, to some breakthroughs in, in that regard. And you're going to see flu. You're going to see a, probably a triple vaccination mm -hmm. combination of, of flu, COVID, and another. Yeah, like virus. an MMR. Yep. The, yep. The, you're going to see these in the pipeline and probably our kids. Yeah. generation and so all these people who are afraid of you know injections of mRNA with time and history you know they're not going to look so smart It'll are be they like mmr polio hbv 
diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, mm -hmm. all the stuff that we're getting yeah. stabbed for all now. All the things that we're going to realize. Against. And then we're going to have cancer vaccines with these RNA platforms that are going to be coming. Yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't that be That's great? That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And they can, they'll be able to personalize them. It takes you about 10 months to make a flu vaccine from identifying the virus strains that you want to focus on mm -hmm. to injecting embryonated eggs to grow up plenty of virus, extract it, purify it, package it, deliver it around the world. We made an RNA vaccine. I say we, the, the scientific the people world, it, the, yeah. the people that do that. They did this in 11 months. The platform's going to get faster. You define what the virus target, virus target that you want, and there, we know the flu changes every season. Mm -hmm. You define that virus target. Within weeks to months, we'll be able to produce that vaccine. And the RNA scale of production is it's much, much faster than trying to replicate viruses, purify yeah, them from growing eggs. them in like eggs. Even and in growing like that, stuff yeah. in tissue yeah, culture, yeah. Is, it's easier to do. Yeah, it it's much easier, much easier to do. And it's interesting that the that people who get online for the the flu vaccine, you know, are not complaining because those are mathematical models they use to predict science they're using to predict what the next variant's going to be in the next year they're not complaining that oh my god you know it's you know i might still get sick and the, or i still might get the flu but if you get immunized like you mentioned you might still get the flu but the symptoms won't be as bad because over time get the cross reactivity but people you people forget that talking about Correct. the covid19 vaccine and I think you're going to see a broadly neutralizing flu vaccine within our lifetime, within probably three to five years. The same concept that I yeah, described yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for HIV. Because flu, the, 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 there, there are a couple of proteins that vary on flu. Mm -hmm. But we'll, there are, again, portions of the flu virus that are, that are invariant that we can yeah. target. An, an important thing to realize, too, is what you're talking about is, yes, there's been a new technology invoked to fight the COVID in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. But the issues that are around this vaccine are exactly the same issues about other vaccines that people take very willingly. True. Right. Um, you know, and if you've had the flu, should you still get a flu vaccine? Of course. So if you've, even if you've had COVID, should yeah. you get the vaccine? Oh, or, absolutely. Or no, you, that's an should important you just point. count on natural immunity? Yeah, that's a really important point. No. You, you don't necessarily develop really durable immunity with natural exposure to COVID. Some people might, probably a significant portion of the population will not. Yeah, and it's also an unknown amount, viral load, you don't know that, that you had. Yes. But, and if you get the immunization, there's a known viral load, a known predictive response afterward yeah. for long-term protection, or at least yeah. amelioration of potential dying yeah. in symptoms. Yeah, yeah. So. I guess the, I guess some of the questions that people might have right now are, do, do I get the booster? Mm -hmm. I would say the older you are, yes, you should. If you're a healthcare professional, you definitely should. Um, at, the, at the time we're recording this, the state of New Jersey just authorized the booster, I think, for people over yeah. 65. So as a 60-plus-year-old as a person mm -hmm. myself, I won't be the, I don't want to be, I'm not going to jump at the head of the line. I can understand that there should be, you know, people in nursing homes and things mm -hmm. like that that should get get the priority for that is uh, moderna better than pfizer it looks like it it looks like moderna is a tad better than pfizer they both provide protective immunity mm -hmm. that you don't end up in a hospital with illness um, but there's a big dose difference between these two vaccines too we there's 100 megs of the nucleic acid and the moderna yeah, versus okay. i think 30 
in the Pfizer vaccine. Oh, that's interesting. And then they tighter down the concentration that they inject little kids. Yeah, with. right. For ki- and, and again, and kids, are kids doing great. The one reason kids took longer is they had to do the science to figure right. out what the right yeah. concentration and was. And just a really important yeah. point about that, I teach a course on aging, and this is something yeah. I rage about with my students. When you do trials on kids for vaccines, which is 90% of the vaccines that we've ever developed were in kids, their immune systems are quite homogenous, right? So we have a boatload of data on immunity in little kids. Old people are all over the map. They have all these comorbidities. They have these histories of diseases. Mm-hmm. Even though you vaccinate them, you don't know if they have good antibody levels, titers, things like yeah, that. Yeah, a lot more so heterogeneity. You need a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of study size, sample size for power and statistical power when you when you look at people over the age of 60. Yeah. 1,000 kids, probably good for a trial. Probably 100,000 we could have, we will have to have you back, Doctor Riggs, talk to talk, and talk about aging, and, and we could do a whole one on stats as well. Unfortunately, we're running out of time on Health Four One One. This is one zero seven seven the Bronx and one zero seven seven thebronc.com. We are recording from the new Digital Bronx Studios. Thank you for listening. I'd like to thank Professor Jim Riggs here at Ryder University. Thank you, Dr. Riggs. You're quite welcome. Great to have you here. We'll have you back. This program is part of Ryder University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. We hope today's conversation has given you some things to think about, about vaccines in general, with an emphasis on the COVID-19 family of vaccines. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Policy. And Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.